From NPR News, this is Foreign Dispatch, a weekly roundup of some of the best coverage of news and events filed by NPR correspondents from around the globe. I'm Nishant Dahia. This week, a new law in Brazil that toughens restrictions on abortions. Doubts over an officer's testimony that forced a British cabinet minister to step down. And in Turkey, the launch of a new underwater rail link. But we start this week's podcast with a look at U.S.-Saudi relations. Secretary of State John Kerry heads to the Middle East this weekend. One key stop on his agenda is the Saudi Arabian capital, Riyadh. There, Kerry will try to fix a public dispute between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia over Syria and the civil war there. NPS Deborah Amos has this report. There's no doubt where the Saudis stand on Syria. You can hear it from the mosque, says Riyad Mansour, a Syrian living in Riyadh. Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, must go. During prayer, they will uh, pray to God to relieve Syrians, to end their sufferings, to take Bashar al-Assad to hell and all of his followers. More than a million Syrians live and work in Saudi Arabia. Mansour is part of a group that organizes private fundraisers to send humanitarian aid to his homeland. Raising money outside government channels is usually prohibited, but the rules have been relaxed for Syrians, says Ziad Morali. And uh, it's not uh, that difficult anymore. Do they object to collecting money for weapons? I do object. (laughs) I don't collect. (laughs) And uh, if I know anybody who wants to give money for a weapon, I can uh, send him to the guy who is collecting money for the weapon. Sending aid and arms to Syria is popular with Saudis, says Assad el-Shamlan. He teaches at the Foreign Ministry's Diplomatic Institute. There is a popular attitude which is even stronger than the one articulated by the government. That popular support is part of the context for the latest government rift with Washington, frustration that's been building since the U.S. invasion of Iraq accelerated during the Arab Spring and has come to a head over Syria, he says. There was no other alternative but to be vocal. Very vocal. Saudi officials rejected a prize seat on the U.N. Security Council over its failure to act on Syria. And the Saudis have threatened to scale back cooperation with the U.S. The latest signal, a speech in Washington. Prince Turki al-Faisal, a former intelligence chief, used unusually blunt language. The dithering of leadership in the West. He charged the Obama administration had actually strengthened the Syrian president by abandoning threats of a military strike and teaming up with the Russians to dismantle Syria's chemical weapons arsenal. Designed not only to give Mr. Obama an opportunity to back down, but also to help Assad to butcher his people. Is this the end of a long-standing alliance? Jamal Khashoggi, an executive at Rotana TV, a private Saudi news channel, says it's a signal of extreme frustration. All right, uh... It's not a serious break, but it is over a particular issue, that is Syria. The war has now spilled over every border in the region. Instability is spreading, he says, with a flood of refugees out of the country and radical Islamists flooding in. Syria is becoming a hub of al-Qaeda, and we don't like that. 
Young Saudis have joined the fight, hundreds, maybe thousands, says Khashoggi, and there are fears that hardened al-Qaeda veterans will return to wage war on the kingdom. Sure, some of them would return to Saudi Arabia. It's dangerous for them to get their training, and he will come back a hardcore, zealous, radical Saudi who, who will hunt us back. But at the heart of Saudi discontent, fears over their rival Iran, a major Syrian ally committed to the survival of the Assad regime. Greg Gauze is a specialist in U.S.-Saudi relations who teaches at the University of Vermont. They're worried that the United States is backing away from what the Saudis see as their major goals right now, which are to contain and, and if possible, roll back Iranian influence in the region and get rid of Bashar al-Assad as part of that program. And they see themselves as the only Arab state standing up to Iranian power. Washington's favorable comments about the new regime in Tehran is another worry for the Saudis, says Khashoggi. Yes, we are not happy that the Americans are talking to the Iranians and keeping us in the dark. They should keep us in the loop. It's just one more sign, he says, that Washington's interests are changing in the region. I think the Americans are losing interest in the Middle East. So I think we should develop in Saudi Arabia an independent approach to resolve our problems. And we cannot take United States for granted anymore. But even Khashoggi admits independence won't be easy. The U.S. is a long-term patron and oil customer, the kingdom's major military contractor. In this turbulent region, the Saudis need American arms more than the U.S. needs Saudi oil. Deborah Amos, NPR News. Latin America has some of the most restrictive anti-abortion laws in the world. Many countries in the region have a total ban on terminating a pregnancy, even in the case of rape or danger to the mother. In Brazil, abortion is illegal, but there are important exceptions, and a new bill is trying to roll those exceptions back. And Piers Lourdes Garcinovar reports from Sao Paulo. The doctor's office is clean and white and comfortingly bland in an upscale neighborhood of Sao Paulo. We were given the address by a health professional who told us one of the doctors here for a price gives safe abortions. The doctor agrees to speak with us anonymously after we prove we're not there to entrap him. He does not admit on tape he terminates unwanted pregnancies, but he says openly he's in favor of legalizing abortions. Most women who want to do an abortion in Brazil, he says, can't afford to come to a doctor. Women die from a perforated uterus, from general infections, he says. In Brazil, a woman is only allowed to terminate her pregnancy if she was raped, if her health is in danger, or if the child won't be able to survive outside the womb. But in practice, say pro-abortion advocates, between 800,000 to a million women a year have illegal abortions here. Some 250,000 of them end up in the hospital with complications. This is a two-tier system. The few who can afford it come to doctors like this one. The many who can't use other, riskier methods. We travel to one of the soulless, concrete satellite cities of Sao Paulo, whose only attraction seems to be a train that takes commuters into Brazil's financial capital. The woman we meet is black and statuesque with a wide smile and grave, watchful eyes. At the time she found out she was pregnant, she was unemployed. Her husband was barely making ends meet, and she already had two other children to take care of, one of them only nine months old. It was a heart-wrenching decision, she says, for both her and her husband. It was a moment of despair. 
I told my godmother, and she said she knew someone who could get me the medicine. I was afraid what it would do to me, but I took it anyway. The mixture she took was unsourced and bought on the black market. She didn't know what was in it or how it would work. And in fact, she remained pregnant for 40 days after she drank it. Then suddenly, I had a very severe hemorrhaging and I was taken to the hospital. They knew what I'd done, and the hospital kept me there for three days. I had to have surgery. The woman says many women she knows have had abortions. Most take at-home remedies because they are cheaper than backstreet abortions, costing only a few hundred dollars. Still, the remedy often leads to complications, and the woman tells me many of her friends have ended up in the hospital as well. Yuri Puello Orozco is the director of Catholics for the Right to Choose. She's a native Colombian, so we speak in Spanish. The majority of women who are at risk from abortions are black, poor, uneducated, and live in the marginal neighborhoods. We estimate that one in five Brazilian women have had an insecure abortion, so we see this as an issue of public health. Orozco says there is a push now in Brazil's Congress, led by powerful evangelical Christian and Catholic congressmen, to change the law as it stands now. The latest attempt is called the Unborn Statute, and if passed, it will grant rights to the fetus. Among its controversial articles is one which would force a rapist to provide child support for any offspring of his crime. Ives Gandra da Silva Martins is a lawyer who consults for the group Brazil Without Abortion and helped author the proposed law. It's a monumental hypocrisy to say because of a question of health, it's okay to kill babies in their mother's stomachs. He says even if the proposed law doesn't pass, it's a victory it's gotten this far. The fact that this law is being debated will raise people's consciousness of the absurdity of killing innocents. In fact, polls show despite many women having abortions here illegally in Brazil, a majority are against legalizing it. Back in the satellite city, the woman we interview agrees. She says despite her experience, she's actually against abortion in principle. I love children and having the abortion caused a trauma. Until today I suffer. I think about how old the child would be now, what it would look like. Thinking it over, she says, maybe the laws should be relaxed but not changed. Lourdes Garcia Navarro, NPR News, Sao Paulo. A year ago, a British cabinet minister was forced to step down after being publicly excoriated. His crime? He allegedly berated two police officers while wheeling his bicycle away from the prime minister's residence. But Vicky Barker reports that doubts are now being cast on the officer's story. It was dismissed as one more skirmish in a class war. A posh conservative cabinet minister, Andrew Mitchell, accused of calling police effing plebs, short for plebeian or commoner, when they told him to take his bicycle through Downing Street's pedestrian gate. Mitchell was then accused of stonewalling officials from the powerful police union when they met with him about the incident. This is what one of them, Inspector Ken McHale, said at the time. I think Mr. Mitchell now has no option but to resign. He's, he's continuing to refuse to elaborate on, on what happened. I, I think his position is untenable. Except Britons now know Mitchell did allow that day and apologized. It turns out he'd secretly recorded that meeting with those union officials and the BBC broadcast part of it with the offending expletive beeped out. But I did say, you know, under my breath, but audibly, in frustration, I thought you lot were supposed to f- 
help us. I did say that. And it is for that that I apologise. Now the union officials are being called liars by no less than Britain's Prime Minister David Cameron, who said Mitchell was wrongly done by. He is owed an apology. The conduct of these officers was not acceptable. These things should be properly investigated. So last week, the three union officials were hauled before British lawmakers, where they denied deliberately misleading the public. Here's Committee Chairman Keith Vaz with one of them, Sergeant Chris Jones. You don't think you've done anything wrong? At the moment, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that we have done anything wrong. Well, you'd know now after a year, wouldn't you? Yeah. I'm, I'm, after a year? I'm not convinced that we've done anything You've done wrong. nothing wrong. You've nothing to apologise for. That's yes. your view. At the moment, yes. The men have also denied deliberately targeting Mitchell as part of a union campaign against government cuts to local police forces. No police officers have been disciplined, despite the strong urging of the independent police watchdog. It's a pattern that's repeated itself for decades, says investigative journalist Tom Mangold. He's been following police scandals since the 1970s. If they're prepared to frame a cabinet minister a cabinet minister, for something he didn't do, then who else are they prepared to frame? And that's really what's beginning to worry people. It's worrying British Home Secretary Theresa May. She has announced that a new, beefed-up police watchdog will begin operating next year. For NPR News, I'm Vicki Barker in London. Coming up, A new marvel of modern engineering in Istanbul, Turkey. Turkey celebrated the opening of a new underwater rail link between the European and Asian sides of Istanbul. It's the first of its kind and realizes the 150-year-old dream of an Ottoman sultan. But the project is also a symbol of the determination of Turkey's leaders with their roots in political Islam to overshadow the pro-Western vision of modern Turkey's founder, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. Here's NPR's Peter Kenyon with this letter from Istanbul. Before we get to the symbolism and the politics behind this continent-linking tunnel, a little practical information. Abandon any romantic notions of well-appointed coaches and silver in China clinking in the dining car. Can I be frank? It's a subway. Plastic seats, fluorescent lighting, incomprehensible announcements. The Orient Express, this is not. It is, however, an undeniably impressive route, nearly 200 feet beneath the dangerous currents of the Bosphorus. Riding the first train open to the public Tuesday evening, I met Turgut, a professor of mechanical engineering. He interrupted an underwater cell phone call to say he wouldn't have missed this for anything. And using the technology, I'm speaking to England now from the underground, under the sea actually. I'm here just to make history. Speaking of history, why did Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan open the tunnel on Republic Day, the 90th anniversary of Ataturk's secular pro-Western Turkish Republic? In past years, Erdogan and other top ruling party officials found excuses to be traveling on Republic Day, thus avoiding ceremonies honoring Ataturk. But this year, Erdogan had the perfect counter-narrative, thanks to an Ottoman sultan who dreamed of a tunnel connecting Asia and Europe long before Ataturk was born. Sultan Abdelmejid ruled the Ottoman Empire in the mid-19th century. In an interesting parallel with Erdogan's early years, the sultan was known for his reforms and friendly approach to Europe. The tunnel, however, proved too great an engineering problem. It took Erdogan, modern technology, and a big assist from Japan to make the tunnel a reality. 
At the opening ceremony, Erdogan mentioned Ataturk, but focused on the Ottoman dream being fulfilled, saying this project not only connects continents, but reunites history with today. To secular Turks already anxious about Erdogan's virtually unchecked power and soaring ambition, reuniting with history is a less than inviting prospect. Speaking of former empires, Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was on hand to mark the opening of the tunnel, in which Japanese engineering and financing played a major role. Abe was modest and gracious, but somehow his praise for Erdogan kept coming back to the same theme. What a good sport Istanbul had been in losing the 2020 Olympic Games to Tokyo last month. It remains to be seen if this historic tunnel does transform itself from a small commuter subway line into the linchpin of a vast rail network linking London and Beijing. It also remains to be seen if Erdogan and his colleagues can dismantle the authoritarian instruments of Ataturk's republic without destroying the human and civil rights that came with it. So far, neither project is off to a perfect start. The first morning commuter trains beneath the Bosphorus suffered delays due to electrical problems. That had some Turks joking darkly about bad omens for the next big Turkish-Japanese partnership, building a nuclear power plant on the Black Sea. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. For more international coverage, you can listen to your local NPR station. You'll find a list at our website, npr.org. And while you're there, you can find more international stories by clicking on News and World. For NPR News, I'm Nishant Dahiya.